The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. A 2018 study by Bellino and Thompson asked 238 employees in a range of industries to explain why they would accept or refuse help from a coworker. This was followed up by a study of 500 workers asking them to confirm or deny the results of the first study. Two-thirds of the latter study indicated that they preferred to finish their work without assistance from their colleagues. The detailed results matched their earlier analysis that there were five fundamental reasons why employees rejected help from their co-workers. The first was a general preference to be self-reliant. The second, to protect their image. Three was to avoid an obligation to return the favor. Four was a suspicion of the co-workers' motives. And finally, an assumption that their co-workers were incompetent. This all points to a clear trajectory that our guest talks about today's. This all points to a clear trajectory that our guest today talks about. Workers are rewarded for individual effort, and there is very little trust between workers, and very little respect, and the general culture appears to be competitive, contemptuous, and toxic. And this is in a world of unlimited development software that enables, directs, and nudges individuals to acquire new competencies and skills, build deep engagement and motivation within a company, and develop high levels of engagement. These two perspectives expose a fundamental contradiction. If you look from the top down, it is directed by technology that can personalize the experience. But if you look from the bottom up, there are basic assumptions about the role of work that are toxic and disempowering. Those are the thoughts of today's guest on the Inside Learning podcast brought to you by the Learnervate Center here in Trinity College, Dublin. He is a global thought leader, TV host, podcaster, university lecturer and former CLO of the BBC. With over 25 plus years of experience in corporate learning, three books in his wake, it is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Nigel Payne. Nigel, welcome to the show. It is a huge pleasure to meet you and talk to you today. I thought I'd start with that opening extract to intrigue our listeners because it really is a conundrum. And when we think of the workplace learning culture today, and many books on the reformation of education, there's a hyper emphasis on individualization and autonomous learning, which you tell us flies in the face of learning as a social process, which it really is. I'd love you to open up with your views on this. I don't think I was uh, excited by that article. I was depressed by that article, because it confirms I think what most people listening to this instinctively know, that most workplaces are toxic and that there is every incentive to diss your colleagues and very little out of being helpful, kind, and generally making things go smoothly. Everything about yourself, nothing much for your colleagues. And I just think that whilst that is the, the way it is, organizations will never perform to their optimum. They will be efficient, they may be effective, they may do okay. But if you want organizations to excel, 
you have to take the people who work there with you. And that means they have to get out of bed in the morning wanting to go to work and leave the workplace, whether they've been working from home or working in an office or anywhere else. They have to leave that place of work feeling they really did something that together as part of an organization, they achieved something so much more than they could do on their own. And, and for me, Aidan, that is the beginning and end of the problem of the current uh, great resignation. People resign from jobs because they look themselves in the face and go, I hate this. Why do I have to put up with this for the rest of my life? And they've got the courage, empowered through COVID, to move on and say, I'll find something better because I'm not going to give my time in this way. So the idea that you, someone asks for help and it's refused, the idea that you dare ask for help because you feel you'll be humiliated or it will look bad is just the, the thin end of a very big wedge, which is about engagement, purpose, motivation in organizations. And I think we've got to turn that around. I really think that we've got to look again at what we do to people in the workplace. We take perfectly reasonable people and we turn them into monsters. And I think that's absolutely appalling. I don't believe anyone ever started their career saying, how can I wreck as many people's lives as possible? But there are plenty of people at work today who do just that by being nasty, by being vindictive, and by making sure they set elephant traps for people and then rejoice as they fall into them. Now, there are organizations where your biggest challenge is not meeting your customers' needs, but how you circumvent all the obstacles thrown at you left, right, left, and center, day in, day out, just to be able to do a half-decent job. I actually think it's shocking, and I will be astonished if people are listening to this going, oh, that's I don't recognize that. Maybe a few, but for the majority, it's that's the way it is, and, it, and we've got to change it. It really is sad, isn't it? I, I think oftentimes I do a lot of exec coaching with CEOs, and they are so lonely, Nigel. They're they're so they feel under extreme pressure. Firstly, by the changing business environment, this VUCA environment that we're experiencing, but then by the very people in the organisations who should be helping them. And there's instead there's this kind of out to get the boss because maybe they're paid a little bit more. But I always say to them. The amount of responsibility you have as a CEO is huge. You should be paid more. I would not like to be a CEO. It's a ma massive job. But I say that to say the amount of energy each of us has, if that's expended internally with internal politics and fighting with the guy or the girl up the hall from you versus actually with the competitor out in the environment, things are not going to turn out very well. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and if your job or a good part of your job is clearing space for yourself, you know, beating back the opposition, or if your job as a manager or a leader is trying to protect your staff from the vindictive environment in the organization. So you're, you're kind of putting out fires all around to allow other people to do a decent job. It is, it is soul destroying. It's really dispiriting because we can do great work and we do the best work when we're working with others. 
Very, very few of us do the best work locked in a room, soundproof room all on our own. And I know for myself that the best times I've ever had at work are when you feel energized because you're part of a great team, you're facing in the direction and in the same direction, and that everybody you work with has your back. That feeling that they've got my back empowers people. And the exact opposite is true. If you feel that as soon as you turn your back, there's a big knife going to be stuck in, doesn't feel great, doesn't inspire you, and doesn't allow you to do your best work. Most people want to do their best work, and they're prevented from it to the point where they end up mid-career having given up on best work and just focusing on survival, doing their job, doing their job. And it's shocking. It's shameful. I think we'll look back in maybe 20 years' time and go, how do we ever get to this point? How do we do this to people? Why did we do this to people? And that we'll look at a world where we've massively increased effectiveness and efficiency, where organizations are zinging along because we simply twisted the, the, the key and opened the door to motivation, empowerment, and engagement. It's not rocket science. It's really very simple. But it's hard for many, many organizations to grasp that. And a lot of people feel this is what work is, this nasty, toxic environment where everyone's out to get you and you're out to get everyone else. And it's not true. It's just an invention that we've got into, I don't know, in how many years, and maybe in the last 50 years, and it's time we got out of it. Yeah, and as you say in, in your writing, it's systemic, as in it's happened over time, it's modeled on the world as it used to be, etc. And just to your point there, I just wanted to say, like, I remember leaving a really toxic organization in in the exact same manner, as you mentioned there. And it was just, I wasn't going to put up with it I only last eight months. I was just kind of going, I can't survive here. I can't actually do good work. Because I was looking around seeing all these broken people spirited, broken spirited. And my wife said to me, well, that's what works like. And I was like, what? <laughs> it doesn't have to be. And it, it was all I just felt what an awful way that society just resigns itself to that's the way it is. It, it doesn't does not have to be. And this is a huge driver of your work with your company, it with is. all the work you've done. So I thought we'd I mentioned there, Nigel, about how you reflect back to the past, and you kind of go look at how even corporate learning is modeled on, for example, the assembly line. And you say, for example, today's corporate learning nirvana is predicated on three individualizations just for me, just in time, and just the right amount of learning. Sounds like an assembly line to me. It is an assembly line. And we can do it. It's, it's like, because we can do it, yes, we do. Whereas I think you say, because we can do it, we should then start to ask, should we do it? Or should we do it slightly differently? And in, in my model, it was very interesting. When I was writing my last book on workplace learning, I started with the assumption that if I could unlock the key to a learning culture, then we could focus in on building a learning culture. But doing the research and talking to individuals and spending time case studying organizations, what I came to realize is long before then, you've got to fix the, the overriding culture. And what I came up with is that if trust, empowerment, and engagement are not there in your organization, kiss goodbye a learning culture, kiss goodbye a sense of purpose, a willingness to collaborate and share, kiss those goodbye. You've got to fix the big things. And if, if nothing else, out of all of those, the dominant one was trust. If nothing else, create a high trust organization. 
then other things will happen. A low trust organization, who's going to share? Who's going to believe you? Who is going to recognize what you consider to be a good deed as a good deed and not as a dubious offer that may or may not be double-edged, you know, and so on and so forth. So trust became a, a very big issue. And I became slightly obsessed by the notion of trust before you get to sharing. You only share when you trust people. And you never would admit, if you don't trust people, why would you ever admit you don't know something? You know, Aiden, I'm struggling with this. You, you, you'd be terrified Aiden is going to use that against you, humiliate you, tell everyone else that you're useless because you don't know how to do X or Y. Whereas in a high trust organization, you say, Aiden, I can't do this. Could you help me with this? And Aiden says, sure, let's sit down and let me, I'll fix it for you. I can do that. I know, what, I know what's wrong. And, and it just makes you feel so much better when you're in an organization where you can be yourself. You don't have to mask. We all wear these horrible, hideous masks of, I'm super competent, I have no flaws, and I've got a fixed smile on my face to show you that I just get on and do the job. And underneath that, people are crying, tortured, and having often deep problems because no one wants to admit what they don't know. And I, I just feel that's awful. We learn when we admit we don't know something. And organizations are not learning organizations when they can't even know what they don't know and celebrate what they do know. And, you know, there's that quote from an ex-head of HP who said, if HP knew what HP knows, we'd be four times as profitable. And you can twist that in whichever way you like, but it's true. If organizations knew what they know, they would be so much more effective and people would be so much happier in those organizations. But it just doesn't happen most of the time. That's the sad thing. If you look at many of the case studies of corporate downfall, it was a lack of trust built on a lack of information sharing. So siloed information, etc. Nokia was a prime example, emotional climate of fear where middle managers are afraid of telling the truth because of how they'd be punished or perceived and they were punished as well. So that's often psychological as we, as we know. But I, I thought about how you were saying there about the masks and leadership in organizations wear masks and we talk about authentic leadership etc and i found out this beautiful origin of the term sincerity so sincerity comes from the spanish actually sincera which i'm probably butchering that it's probably sincera or something like that which means without wax and it its origin dates back to a time where sculptors when they made a mistake with a statue would cover it with wax and sincera means no wax. So you're thro- you're showing warts and all, problems and all, etc. And we talk about leaders kind of going, oh, authentic leadership's the way forward, etc. And I always say, yeah, but only if the environment allows for it. Because like you said there, a leader kind of goes, oh, I don't know the answer to that. All of a sudden, if there's snakes in the grass or snipers on the rooftops in the organization, pretty soon they'll lose trust in that leader because people will be out to get the leader. And and that's just so awful, I think, for leadership. Yes, when a leader can't admit that they're not sure, that the future is uncertain. So we know the future is uncertain. But what we force leaders to do is make these certain bets. And that's where things go wrong, because they get them, they get them wrong, and they feel they can't give in change, move, move in a different direction. Whereas, you know, my, my, my 
expression is one that Reg Revens, who invented action learning, talks about. He talks about colleagues and adversity. Colleagues in adversity can solve any problem because they're all facing the same, whatever it might be, uncertainty, um, disturbance, transformation, and they work together on agreeing for the time the best course of action, which could become a different course of action when things change or that course of action didn't work so well. But if, if, you, if you have that kind of trust to admit that there are limited there's limited certainty in this world, particularly at the moment, but we can make our best guess that this is the way to go. That is so much more reassuring. And you've got so much chance of becoming an agile organization when you approach leadership like that. But when we believe we pay you enough money, make all the decisions, you got that wrong, you're fired. That's a ridiculous way out ridiculous so authentic the, the danger is that when you talk about authentic leadership and you buy the books and you you go on the course uh, there is an authentic leadership institution you're just being told how to fit the mask on whereas what i'm trying to do is get rid of the mask and you become the kind of leader necessary and sometimes you have to be strong and strict and make terrible decisions that have to be made and sometimes you have to be a servant leader who just really listens and follows and takes the lead from the rest of the organization. And sometimes it's, it's a combination of all those. But I, I think the idea that as a leader, you're locked away in your office, which is a miserable, lonely experience, is completely wrong. You've got to be engaged with the organization in whichever way is appropriate at the time. And you know, what, one of my philosophies, one of the things that worries me about learning, corporate learning, is two things. One is a lack of field work. We don't get out there and find out what's actually going on. And it's true for leaders. You know, I've done leadership coaching, a lot of leadership coaching. One of the things I say is when leaders say, oh, well, this is going on. I say, how do you know? Well, I was told by the CFO. And I said, well, did you take that any further? Have you talked to any more people? No, no, the CFO, he, she really knows what's going on. And I say, it's not good enough. You've got to get out there, see with your own eyes, talk to the people that are at the sharp end of that and build your uh, correlations so that if the CFO says it, it's backed by this person and that team, it's probably likely to be true. Do your field work. But L&D particularly takes orders. I think, I think our sales team needs some uh, leadership training. Why? Who says? Someone, one person says. He doesn't even know the team very well. Go out there, do your field work. And the other thing that really uh, interests me is this concept of being a professional, to develop your professional, uh, your professional craft so that if you're an L&D, be a professional. Be the person who develops, gets new ideas, tests out the market amongst other professionals so that you can be the person who is different this year to next year, better than the year after. But if we don't see that as part of our role is to get better, and we don't see we need to do any field work, I just think we're doomed. I think organizations with leadership who think like that are doomed, and L&D that does, thinks like that is also doomed. Let's build on that now, Nigel, because you give multitude of solutions and frameworks in your work. And I found it really interesting that your origins of your work and you and I had a nice chat before we came on air about the 
the old stuff, the old work, the old research is so valuable still. And oftentimes it's dumbed down with new readings and new books, etc. But I wanted to share a little quote here because you said in the incre- in increasing the quantum of learning, it's not the same as building a learning culture. So just because you can get learning to people in more individualized ways doesn't mean that the company is becoming a, a learning company. And you, you go back to one of the great thinkers, Chris Argerus, may he rest in peace. And he defined in 1992 that the kind of organizational structures that define or enable organizational learning, irrespective of individual learning systems. And he said amongst them were flat, decentralized systems, measures of organizational performance, systems of incentives to promote organizational learning, and ideologies associated with such measures such as boundary crossing, openness, and continuous learning. I absolutely love that. So this is get the heck out of the silos, bring people together, get them to share ideas, no fear of sharing, as you say, built all on trust. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Argus also came up with this concept of double loop learning. And these two things linked together. If you can create that sort of engagement, then you are far more analytical and profound in your understanding of issues. And what Argerich says is you don't go for the what seems to be the issue or the problem. You go for what is causing the problem and what problem is causing that problem that's causing that problem. You de- dive deep, and that's what he calls double-loop learning. And in organizations with the complexity, we still knee-jerk. That's the obvious issue. That's the problem we're solved. When often that creates another problem somewhere else or two problems somewhere else. So you've got to have a profound engagement to really understand what's going on in the organization. Jeff Bezos talks about the, the six levels of why. So if he's got an executive, he says, this is the problem, Jeff. He'll ask why, and then why did that cause that, and why did that cause that? And he thinks that when you've gone down six levels, you've got to the truth, or you've got to something that you can deal with. Maybe it's not six levels, but it's certainly often your superficial reaction when you do your field work and you see yourself as a practitioner, when you are willing to learn and develop, the world is completely different, and you react to the right issue or challenge, not the wrong issue and challenge. So yes, I, I think Argus is is also right in saying that organizations need to talk to each other. And not just teams, but teams need to talk across the whole organization, regardless of how big they are. Organizations need to know what they know. And that's my model. You know, my model of a learning culture is my I use this metaphor of a the learning gyroscope that just like a gyroscope in a plane keeps the pilot right, keeps the plane pointed towards the horizon because the gyroscope builds its artificial horizon. So the pilot always knows where they are. Learning from outside, in, shared around the organization generates the spin of the gyroscope and allows the organization to know where the horizon is and not fly upside down or fly straight into a mountain which is what organizations have done. You, we all know, give plenty of examples of organizations who have flown blind straight in the wrong direction, you know, up or down the wrong way. And what I think learning does is help organizations fine tune when they need to by bringing in the understanding of the way the environment is changing and sometimes make big leaps forward when they need to do that as well. So uh, to me, not just individual learning, but 
the collective learning of the organization is what makes sense. And I, I use this phrase, which people laugh at me for, but I'll stick with it. And that is that learning happens in the space between individuals in, in a learning organization. And if you've been, if you've ever worked in an organization, which is a learning organization or close to it, you'll get that sense of, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world because just being here is the buzz of new stuff coming at me, of being able to share my fears, worries, and, uh, and non-understandings and get that back in spades, a new level of understanding, a new level of competence so that it, it, you never feel like I've done this on my own. You feel like I couldn't do this without my team, the rest of the organization around me. And, and that's why people leave. If you, if you feel that you're the genius and everything else is, it's, everyone else is daft or not competent, as in that original survey that you started with, why wouldn't you just walk away and go for somewhere that pays you better, looks a little bit better? But if you're in an organization where the very essence of being there is about learning, you're not going to leave in a hurry because it's too good. It's too good to stay. And when you hear people genuinely excited about their workplace and say, this is such a great place to work, then you know, I, I, my, a little smile breaks out on my lips because that's what, it's, I, I, what we're aiming for. And I have never yet heard anyone say, this is a great place to work. And it isn't about growth, development, learning, and a sense of the whole organization being able to pull together when it's necessary to pull together and to push together when it's necessary to push together. So, you know, I, I don't think these things are kind of, oh, you're just being nice. You know, this is what organizations in a real, in a dream world. I am talking about basic fundamental stuff. It's not being nice. It's being it's being sane, sensible, like Argus said. It's the only way you're going to get organizations moving forward. And in the world we live in, they need to move forward all the time, not just once every five years, but all the time. So I, I think that what I'm saying is for this is for this world that we live in now. And everything else was for a world that's now gone by. So this is the future, is organizations which focus on learning, empowering people and get the best out of people so that they give their discretionary effort. And when you get people giving their discretionary effort, which only they can give, mountains get moved. So that's that's the belief, Aiden. That's my belief. Beautiful way to finish. I had a quote that I was going to end with, but that's even better. So <laughs> we'll leave that with a positive note, Nigel, as well. And I do want to emphasize that you mentioned, that, for example, that quote I read at the start is a little bit on the depressing side, but there are solutions and Nigel's work is very much about solutions. Nigel, for people who do want to reach out to you, find you, find the plethora of content that you release, where can they find you? There's my website, www.nigelpain.com. It's P-A-I-N-E.com. There's lots of stuff on there. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very happy if you want to link with me on LinkedIn. That's a really good way in. Or you can just, you know, search for me on the web. Luckily, I've got a name that if you put in Nigel Payne on Google, I'm the first one that comes up. So you don't have to go through 150 <laughs> of us. So I'm, you can, I'm, I'm very, I'm very easy to find. Save you a fortune on search engine optimization, Nigel, as well. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Nigel, it's been an absolute pleasure welcoming you here on the Inside Learning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much.
Next up on the Inside Learning Podcast, we have Head of Membership Services with the LearnAbout Center here in Trinity College. Welcome, David Farrelly. Hey, Aidan. Good to catch up. It's great to have you on the show. Long time coming, man. You've been uh, one of those guys on the list for a very long time, a rock star relationship manager. And we've just heard from Nigel Payne. He is a speaker at the upcoming Learnovation 2022 conference back in person, which is absolutely fantastic. You are one of the driving forces behind that event. So let's tell our audience a little bit about that event. Absolutely. And thanks, Aidan. And I appreciate your rock star feedback there. We are very excited to have Learnovation back in person in Dublin on the 20th of October. And indeed, Nigel Payne, one of our patron members, is speaking at that event. Uh, we are hoping to have close to 250 attendees in Crow Park on the 20th of October. And our event will be very much focused around the future of work and learning and really looking at the whole concept that the future of learning is now. So we have a great lineup of speakers. We have a number of panel discussions and we have some interactive workshops as well. We are looking forward to welcoming all Learnovate members as well as a wider guest group of organizations who will be there on the 20th of October as well. You mentioned Nigel is a member, patron member. Let's let our audience know, for those people who are interested in membership, what it entails to be a member, what part of community you are, what kind of events you can look forward to, etc. Sure. And uh, we very much lead with our membership model in terms of how we engage with industry organizations. And we have a really diverse group of organizations now with a passion for, for learning and development and education and learning technology as part of our membership. We are close to 65 members at this very moment in time. We have members from schools, K-12 environments. We have members from third level higher education and formal and further education. And we also have a number of corporate L&D members as well. So we are a community of like-minded professionals. We have patron members like Zoom, like Nigel Payne and other organizations that come in and help direct our research agenda. We have a number of contributor and learner members as well. So we have a three-tiered membership model where we will work with an organization to identify the best point of entry for them. All of our members have access to our research, have access to all of our great calendar of events and access to our community as well. So we will facilitate introductions between our member organizations and ideally identify some areas of collaboration for them. So Dave, apart from getting in touch with you, where can people find out more about becoming a member? And indeed, where can they find you? Absolutely. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. Look forward to connecting with as many of your audience as possible and discussing Learnovate membership. But Learnovate website, www.learnovatecenter.org is our website and you can see all of the information there in relation to the benefits of membership who our members are and what you need to do to become a member of Learnovate. So there you have it Dave has given a full benefits package of what it means to be a member of the Learnovate Center please do go along to Croke Park the event and you can meet Dave there you can find out it much more about Learnovate Centre and indeed meet Nigel Payne, our guest that we had on this month's episode. 
for now, Head of Membership Services with the Learnovate Centre, Dave Farley. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aidan. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.